0: Acts 26, 1 through 18. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. This is the reading of God's Word. He may be seated. <coughs> You've probably seen those perception optical illusions where there's a picture, but it's got... More than one picture in it, I think of the one you've probably seen where it's a, a, a witch kind of looking lady in profile with a big nose and a big wart on her nose. But as you stare at it, you, you can see actually a, a beautiful younger woman with a, with a uh, fur coat on and there's both, both images there. And sometimes when you look at these kind of images, sometimes you need somebody to show you the other version before you can see it. But once you do see it, you can almost not unsee it. don't take the analogy too far, but that's kind of how the Jews saw the promises made to them in the Old Testament. They had this one image entrenched in their minds uh, that they could just not see any other way. There was another picture, a more beautiful picture, present the whole time in that revelation, but they just couldn't see it. They were looking at these, these same set of promises and coming to different conclusions and indeed a different hope. Paul says in verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope. Now, this is not the only place in Scripture that apologetics, Paul's making a defense, that apologetics is tied uh, to hope. Of course, the most famous apologetics verse being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. First Peter three fifteen. Why is that? Why is hope connected to the defense of, of the gospel, to apologetics? It's because I think because hope animates us. We we sort of wear our hopes as we live out our lives. If your hope rests in princes and war horses That is what you will focus on. If you have very little hope, you will inevitably be listless and and depressed and directionless. If your hope is in the economy, that's what you will talk about. That's what you will think about on on politicians or perhaps an ideal set of politicians that have never existed. If your hope rests there or in, in relationships, whatever it is, when I obtain this thing, this status, this future, I will be, I will be secure, I will be happy, I will be content. That's our hope, and our hope animates us. They're on display for all to see. So the defense of our faith is the defense of our hope, that which most animates, undergirds, and grounds us and drives us. <laughs> What we see here in in Paul's fifth uh, defense, which we'll look at half of today, uh, before Agrippa, is his hope. His hope is on trial, and we see that his hope is rooted in promise, or in Scripture, centered on the risen Christ, and anticipating completion. His hope is rooted in promise, centered in the risen Christ, and anticipating completion. <clears throat> Paul begins his defense in a sort of common rhetorical gesture. Um, I've heard that some people think he was this was the gesture, or this way. I don't know. Uh, it could be a call for silence or more perhaps just a call of greeting to Agrippa, but he he raises his hand to Agrippa when pa- Agrippa gives him um, permission to speak, and he begins his defense. And recall, just his background, Paul finds himself here after two years of imprisonment in Caesarea at Herod's Praetorium because Governor Felix left him there as a favor to the Jews. And the Jews are after Paul because, well, they don't like Paul. They don't like his gospel. They don't like his ministry to the Gentiles. And so they've leveled all kinds of accusations against him, but none of them stick. They cannot prove any of them. And the governors, Felix and then Festus to follow, realize this, but they're afraid to dismiss the case because they're afraid of the Jews. So Paul has appealed to Caesar, and while he's waiting for Caesar to come, King Festus asks the advice of Agrippa, who is uh, familiar with Judaism. And so this hearing is so that Agrippa can hear Paul, and so that Festus, by his own admission, will have something to write To send with Paul to Caesar, because he doesn't have anything on him. Paul says in verse 3 that he's happy to address Agrippa because of his familiarity with Judaism, and we'll see as he goes through this defense, this is the most uh, scripturally and theologically rich defense, precisely because Agrippa knows what he's talking about. His defense here begins with his own story. Um, Paul is and has become a fairly famous man um, by virtue of of his agitation of the Jews, uh, being a thorn in their side. But also, he was well known even before he became a Christian, as we read in Galatians that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. Uh, he was, as we know, educated by the great Gamaliel. Um, he grew up as a Pharisee. Among Pharisees, he says here, he was was in Jerusalem, he was in the mix. They knew him, probably many of the the temple rulers grew up with Paul. They knew who he was. They knew what he stood for. That's why he says in verse 5, they have all known for a long time if they're willing to testify. They know who he is. They know what he's about. They know the roots of his hope. He asserts why he believes he 's on trial here in verse six um, it 's not for the introduction of some new or novel heresy. In fact, he asserts it 's because of the shared promise that he has with the Jews. and the point of contention is not not the promise, but it 's the hope the, the conclusion of the promise. That that it might, in fact, be fulfilled through Jesus of Nazareth. That while the Jews believe they must continue to wait for the promise, Paul believes it has been and is being fulfilled now in Jesus. And that's the point of contention. That's the hope. Notice his emphasis on what he and his accusers share in verse 6. It is his hope in the promise. One shared common promise between he and the Jews made by God. Again, one shared common God, the God of their fathers, their shared fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and David. And it is the promise to which, as he says, the Jewish nation or the 12 tribes look. He says, I'm looking to the same promise. This is the thing they're worshiping about day and night. I am worshiping about as well. So they have the same promise, the same revelation, but they have arrived at different conclusions, at different hopes. And what is that promise? Well, in one sense, it can be difficult to summarize the promise because the whole Old Testament represents the promise and there's so many promises made there. We might look to the Messiah figure promise throughout the Old Testament that the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent in the cosmic battle between life and death, or the prophet, the one who would come who is like Moses, or the Davidic king promised to David who would come sit on his throne. Or we could talk about the Abrahamic blessings that, that Michael's been leading us through in Sunday school uh, that, that there would be a great nation firmly rooted and established in their own land and experiencing peace and prosperity. Or we could look to the promise of the the great eschatological promises of the prophets of peace and a final exodus and exile of the remnant along a long thirsted for fulfillment of all that had been previously promised and culminating ultimately in the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. We could also summarize the promise that they look to, the hope, by the what's been called the covenant formula that courses through the veins of the message of, of, of the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. Its, its fullest and final expression is the hope of Paul and the hope of the Jews. And it is our own hope. So this is the first thing we see here in Paul's defense is that his hope is a rooted hope. So often our hopes are not rooted. They're based on a whim or conspiracy or or untethered doctrines of men that are always shifting with the winds and waves of doctrine. But his hope is deeply rooted in, in history and in the scriptures and in the promises of God. We have to ask ourselves, where is our hope? Is it securely rooted? Is it grounded in the scriptures and in the promises of God? Next, Paul asks a question that pinpoints really the heart of the controversy, and it shows that his hope is centered in the resurrected Christ. In verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It almost seems arbitrary. Where is he bringing this out of left field of God raises the dead? On the one hand, to the Romans in the room, which many of the people are Romans in the room, Paul may be saying, don't scoff at the idea of the resurrection. Is it so far-fetched that the God who created life can raise the dead? We saw that response in in Athens among the the Greeks. They, They listened to Paul until he brought up the resurrection, and then they scoffed at him. But I think actually more importantly and more likely here, he's actually focusing in on Agrippa, who he knows knows the Jewish faith and who is familiar with the scriptures. And he's saying, is it so hard to imagine that resurrection might be a reality now? Does it not stand in Scripture as, as the pinnacle of our own hope? And are, are not new creation and ultimate resurrection the highest of God's promises in the Old Testament? Is it so impossible? Just a couple of, of texts from the Old Testament that teach us about resurrection, the final resurrection. Daniel twelve two And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Isaiah twenty six nineteen, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And then Job nineteen twenty five to twenty seven, for I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So it's throughout Scripture, these promises are throughout Scripture. Is it so far fetched, Agrippa? That, that that Jesus could have been raised from the dead as the first fruits of all of these promises. But Paul knows that the problem is not a failure, a rational failure to comprehend the possibility of the resurrection, or that Jesus of Nazareth might be the fulfillment of all that's been promised. The, promise is spirit, the problem is spiritual death and spiritual blindness. An inability to see the picture that's right in front of him. A condition to which Paul has been subject himself. In verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, in, in the Greek here, this I myself is, is extremely emphatic. He crams the, the first person pronoun in three times. It's I, I was convinced myself that this was false, that Jesus was not raised from the dead, that Christianity, that the way was evil. He says he locked up Christians, whom now in his speech he calls saints. He cast stones against them when they were stoned to death. Um, perhaps not literally, but this phrase, I cast my vote, is, is literally, I, I cast my pebble. That's the one way you could vote, is put your pebble in the in the basket, so to speak. And Paul wasn't a voting member of the Sanhedrin, but what you think when he held the garments of those who were stoning Stephen, and he looked on with affirmation and approval. He was putting his stone in the basket against him. He says he punished them often in verse 11, and he, I like the word tried. He tried to make them blaspheme, apparently without a lot of success, Um, make Christians deny the name of Jesus of Nazareth. he describes his own emotions here toward this Jesus and his followers as raging fury. He hated Jesus. He hated Christianity. And it was overflowing raging fury even beyond outside of Jerusalem and Judea, even as far as Damascus. It was on his way to Damascus that the eyes of his heart were opened by the Holy Spirit. He, he saw that picture that had been before him the whole time. And his hope found a new and a better reference, a better locus. We're familiar with the story by this point. This is the third recounting of it in Acts. In verse 13, at midday, O King, I saw the way, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. We might paraphrase Jesus here and just say, Paul, you stubborn mule. Why do you buck so hard against your own Messiah and his people? Uh, A goad is essentially a sharp stick or a cattle prod. And it was really a common Greek proverb that essentially meant, why are you fighting against God? And it's interesting, he says to him, it is hard for you, Paul, to fight against the goads. It's not as if there's any skin off Jesus' nose at this point, but it's hard for you. And isn't that the case when we fight against God, that it, it is hard for us though, or those whom we love who are fighting against God? It's like like a, an animal who's trying to fight his way out of a, of a pin or something and he's just exhausting himself and why are you doing that when your shepherd is just trying to feed, nourish, and medicate you? It's hard for you to kick against the goats In an instant then, Paul knew Jesus was raised from the dead and he knew all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And his his hope gained a new and a narrower focus. This new hope will redirect and will drive the ambitions of Paul for the rest of his life. Jesus himself here sets the course and if we're careful to listen Uh, There are powerful allusions and echoes of the Old Testament in the commissioning of Paul that demonstrate once again that Paul's hope is grounded in the promise, in the Scriptures, and it's centered in the risen Christ. And it leads us to our final point, that his hope is anticipating completion. So verse 16, Jesus says to Paul, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. The first allusion we see to the Old Testament is, is Paul's call himself. It echoes that of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Just listen to Ezekiel's call and notice the similarity to Paul's Ezekiel 1.28 Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of the one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Stand on your feet. This is a, a clear echo and, and it shows that Paul is being called as a prophet of, of Yahweh, of the Old Testament. Another allusion here, Paul is called a witness and a servant in verse 16, which really to be a witness and a servant in the world is part of the eschatological in time responsibility of Israel. Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So like the Old Testament Israel of old, Paul is being called to be a witness and a servant to the Most High. and Another... Allusion we have here is comparing the purpose of Paul given to Paul in his his commission in seventeen and eighteen with the servant songs of Isaiah there 's an undeniable and intentional resonance here, and it 's something that Agrippa would have pe- picked up on something Luke intends for us to pick up on. Uh, just compare with verses 17 and 18. These, these passages from the servant songs, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And again, from another of the servant songs, 49, Isaiah 49, 6. The Lord says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring uh, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. (laughs) Jesus himself says to Paul in 17 that he's sending him to the Gentiles and in verse 18, again, to open their eyes. You hear the echo of Isaiah there. To open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This connection between Isaiah and, and Paul's call is really profound and actually there's a whole lot more to it but it 's amazing, and we can see why it might be offensive to the Jews. Paul is claiming the Messiah visited him and told him that these great beloved prophecies of the servant' songs of Isaiah were being fulfilled by Jesus, and that Paul is playing a part in it, and that his Gentile mission is a fulfillment of those great prophecies G k Beale help is helpful here he He says, Thus, against the backdrop of Isaiah 42, 43, and 49, Paul is seen as carrying on the task of the prophesied Isaianic servant begun by Christ, with whom Paul is corporately identified and by whom Paul is represented. Of course, in doing so, Paul is a ministering assistant of the servant. Like Christ, Paul opens eyes to turn from darkness and shines light to the Gentiles. Christ and Paul are leading the second new exodus and return from exile prophesied in Isaiah 40 through 66. So in other words, all that that's been promised of the, the, the coming new creation is being fulfilled by Christ through His servants. This is what we've been seeing over and over again through Acts is by the propagation of the gospel through the Great Commission, Jesus Christ is doing His work. And we can see why hopes diverged then at the resurrection. Why Paul brings that up in verse 8. The Jews who did not believe in Jesus, did not believe in his resurrection, continued to hope in a future Messiah, a future establishment of the nation of Israel. But Paul, who has encountered the risen Christ, becomes one of the instruments in the hands of this Messiah King as he puts his hands in the plow to finish all that the servant was prophesied to do. So for him, the age of fulfillment has arrived. This is happening now. It's arrived. It's arrived in an inaugurated form awaiting its consummation. But this is Paul's driving hope. And we have the privilege of being the recipients of this, uh, uh, the recipients of the, the great Gentile mission that was prophesied. We are the Gentiles. In verse 18, the purpose of Paul's commission is described in in three connected purposes. The first purpose is to open their eyes. Paul's job is to open the eyes of the Gentiles. God's revelation through the word of the apostles, through the illumination of the Spirit, has opened the eyes of our hearts to encounter Christ the risen Christ for ourselves. Secondly, his purpose is so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Paul reminds us in Colossians 1 of our former state that we were held captive in a kingdom or a domain of darkness that is governed by Satan. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ, He has thus transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So, this great cosmic battle that started in Genesis prophesied in Genesis three fifteen is, is being won the, by the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles. The third purpose is that they might receive, number one, forgiveness of sins, and number two, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the great promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 34, forgiveness of sins, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The certificate of debt with its legal demands has been nailed to the cross. And how do we partake of all of this, all of these benefits of Christ? Jesus says in, in to Paul that it's by faith. It's the second thing that we receive. Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me. The Jews, they were hung up on A false hope that was really couched in their own ethnic identity. We are sons of Abraham. But Paul says it is those who are of faith who are of the household of Abraham. Those who believe in Jesus are set apart as his special and chosen people and we will receive his inheritance. We see then in this first half of Paul's defense before Agrippa this this grand trajectory, a hope that's grounded in promise, established and centered in the risen Christ and anticipating the ultimate fulfillment of his kingdom through the spreading of the gospel. Is this the, the image that you're seeing when you look at the promise of Scripture? Is this the grounding focus and anticipation of your hope? I'll just close with Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Amen.